And that brings me to the end of this episode. Um, again, when we pick back up next time, we'll begin to look at some of the African traditions and some of the African influences on music uh, that were handed down into the present. We'll look at it sort of roughly in the same way that we looked at in this episode. We'll look at you know, the secular and the religious traditions, but that's where we'll go with the conversation next. See you then. So this should be a bit of a lighter topic than some of the other heavy things that we've been talking about for a couple of episodes or weeks now. But nonetheless, we have to divide it up in certain ways. And uh, we're going to divide the, divide the topic up in ways that are very similar um, to the ways in which we've been talking about other things inside the class. And so first, I want to make the division between what we're largely going to start with would be um, European versions of music and then African versions of music. And those are going to trace down to the present, but we're also going to be able to divide them into secular and religious traditions as well. Those are just the rough overall uh, divisions that we can make. Uh, some things actually defy uh, categorization to some degree. Uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp, I think, falls into some of those traditions, and, and arguably we could file her in that. I mean, just off the top of my head, I, I think we could file her, I would say, into all four to some degree, and the influences that uh, were played upon um, her music. And by the way, we're not going to get to her until next episode, but I'm just giving you an example uh, that, yes, we could divide things up into categories to discuss music, but those categories become problematic. What is not problematic is the way in which music has been used in human cultures for long periods of time, and uh, it's really no different how, the, how music has been used in the American South as well especially since those traditions have been handed down into the American South. So if we go back to, you know, again, we could just start with somewhere like Europe. Music served functions. It wasn't just a, a popular form of entertainment. It also, again, served certain uh, functions inside of culture and society. So, for example, it was a way that people could, uh, could give the news to one another. Um, there's a little bit of a nod to this, I believe, in Shakespeare in The Winter's Tale, um, there are ballads and uh, stories that are told to music. This is not just a, you know, a, I'm going to play a nice tune and, and that's great. Um, that's largely what music is used for in human culture, is to be able to tell uh, those stories about a variety of things, love, loss, revenge, um, journeys, uh, you know, all kinds of things like that. And by the way, if you think about the themes that I just named a second ago, you could probably name some modern music that has those themes. Those themes, uh, those topics date back centuries. As long as there's been humankind making music, those are some of the topics that humankind has been making music about. So how then did those traditions and uh, this background come to influence the American South? Well, there are several different ways we could approach this. One way we could approach it is, is I would say, the obvious. Uh, if you look at something like honky-tonk music and honky-tonk dancing, line dancing, uh, that traces back to Europeans as well. Uh, if you've never seen the connection before, I want to encourage you to go and look at strict formal forms of dancing as found in Europe. And uh, those, those forms of dancing have been translated to some degree into things like line dancing. There is a strict rigor to them, and that that rigor is something that also influences again country line dancing. If you are not familiar with the steps needed to do that type of dancing, 
you will be lost on the dance floor and you're going to be more of a liability than you are uh, a partner or somebody who's out there to have fun. And so again, you know, go out, look at the different kinds of dancing, look up a video. Um, there are those forms, yes, still around today, but if you look at those forms and then compare them to, again, something like country line dancing, you're going to see the connection. Now let's, let's draw that back around as well to the way in which um, some of these religious traditions have influenced the present as well. Again, religion um, and music are heavily connected. Think about you know, when you go into church, uh, any church, any denomination at all, there's a song playing. This could be you know Catholic, it could be Eastern Orthodoxy, it could be um, Baptist, Methodist, anything, anywhere is going to have some kind of religious tradition uh, associated with, with certain kinds of music. And so this is one way the music began to spread across the South. Uh, people used it to worship. Uh, they would use it both in private, so they would have you know, uh, people there at the home, and I've talked about the home when we looked at uh, gender in brief, uh, but they would they would be there at home and uh, people could sing psalms or, or sing uh, songs of worship. And that's, again, exactly how uh, one of the major ways in which music began to spread across the region. Um, people would uh, build upon, you know, whatever natural talents that they had. And so, you know, one very popular book, for example, was The Sacred Harp. And uh, some people have said that the Sacred Harp was as popular, if not more popular, than the Bible across the entire South. Uh, I, I can attest to that because growing up, um, I can remember that we had a piano in the living room, and there was, you know, the, the bench with the piano. And inside the bench, uh, I believe that my great grandmother had a copy of the Sacred Harp, among many, many other um, uh, types of music that she had there. But, you know, this is something that drove the music tradition across the South. If you've ever heard of shape notes, for example, shape notes were one way in which they attempted to, to bridge musical uh, understanding because some people, quite frankly, just don't automatically know how to read music or they have been taught uh, with, you know, again, shapes in order to help them to, uh, to be able to perform. So those are, again, some, that's a broad overview of how music began to spread across the South. But now let's talk about it in more specific ways as well. So where's this religious music coming from? Well, the, the irony is that a lot of this religious music that's in the South uh, came from people in the North. People in the North, uh, songwriters in the North began to realize that people in the South were very interested in uh, singing and in music of this sort. And so they began to write it and construct it in order to sell it to Southern audiences. And that actually forms the pattern for a lot of what we're going to be looking at inside of this and the next episode this uh, music, the, the proliferation of music across the United States was not a tale just of the American South, but the American South plays an important role in that tale. But the influence of other regions upon the South and upon uh, the music of the South, and then in turn, the, South, the Southern influence upon other regions as well, is the overall tale that we really need to look at. So you did have, again, songwriters in the North who would you know, construct these songs or write these songs and then sell them to Southerners uh, because they knew that Southerners would buy them. And that forms the pattern that we'll be looking at as we get into other kinds of music. Okay, with some of that groundwork set, I hope that you can understand, really, I'm just going to jump forward because this is not a, a musical history podcast. That is not the function. Again, this is an overview of the American South, a sort of uh, smorgasbord of, of things like that. 
So what I want to do then is I want to jump all the way forward to where we get to radio, because radio is really where the modern story starts, and it's where we can start to look at and really listen to artists associated with uh, the American South. One of the first artists that we can really truly listen to is uh, an artist named Fidlin John Carson. And Fidlin John Carson, I'm going to, again, play just a little bit of it. I think I'm covered by copyright in doing this, but I'm going to play just a little bit of it. And I want to point out some things about it. Okay, so here's what I want to point out about that. You'll notice that there are a lot of fiddles, and obviously somebody named Fiddlin' John Carson is going to want a lot of fiddles, but it's not that different from what we might think of today. And this is music that's several decades old, um, but that's what I want you to see, or rather hear, as part of Fiddlin' John Carson, is that um, the influences start early but they are also felt in many genres today. So, you know, if we think of this as the roots of country music, you might listen to that and say, well, I mean, yeah, okay, maybe. But yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, the music that you just heard a second ago, it does influence country music today, but it also influences bluegrass, it influences uh, indie rock, it influences rock and roll in general. The, the music and the sound has come down to the present um, through these various genres and has manifested into those genres uh, based on some of the instrumentation and some of the uh, the ideas that are proposed or, or presented, I should say, in someone like Fidlin John Carson. So when you have somebody like Fidlin John Carson and they're they're on the radio or they're you know starting to kind of sell or you know people are starting to take note of them, you get talent scouts. Yeah, it's, it's no different than today. You get talent scouts who want to explore an area and go out and they want to find um, new examples of that music. Uh, anytime that a new genre starts, you get an influx of people who want to make, you know, let's face it, a quick buck off of this by finding other examples, again, that, that could be sold. Uh, this happens in any, any form of entertainment. If you have a, a movie about a young kid, a wizard, uh, <laughs> that kid wizard, once that movie starts making lots of money, you're going to have other young you know, kids in movies. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe started after Harry Potter. Uh, the Percy Jackson series. Again, you know, it, it's the same universally. And this brings us to Ralph Peer. Ralph Peer was a talent scout, and he just did not care much about this music except for what it could do for him. And he wanted to go out and he wanted to be able to find this music and put it into the RCA catalog, uh, and he, he came up with a name for it. It was Hillbilly Music, and that's how he filed it. And this name seems to have stuck. We still have that name associated with the, this music today. Um, some people say it very proudly. Uh, if you've ever been in the mountains of North Carolina, you'll know that uh, people up there really enjoy playing music. And you'll know that many of them will call their music something like that. Uh, again, proudly, because that's how they identify it. But Ralph Peer went out, and he began to scout around, and he found really two major groups and one group represented or one individual i should say represented the sort of unwholesome aspect 
of music, whereas the other one represented a more wholesome aspect. So the first one was Jimmy Rogers, and Jimmy Rogers' music uh, follows along the lines somewhat of Fiddlin' John Carson, but he begins to build on it and refine that noise, that 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 sound. I almost called it noise, but that sound. Um, and then on the other hand, you have uh, the Carter family, and the Carter family is again the more wholesome aspect, and they too build on the sound, but in a very very different way, a more melodious way with a more wholesome style lyrics. And I want to concentrate on these two because they begin to form that foundation for um, uh, the radio, but then they also set a standard from which country music began to evolve. So let's look at each of these. Let's start by looking at Jimmy Rogers. And I fully confess that I am a big Jimmy Rogers fan. Uh, not in the sense that I could name a whole bunch of his songs, but I really like Jimmy Rogers' music. If I were going to sit down and listen to classic country music, it would definitely 100% be Jimmy Rogers. Uh, because I, I like his style, I like um, you know just the form of his music. It resonates with me. There's something about it that uh, connects. It's probably because full confession here. Uh, I'm an indie rock guy. I like uh, people like the Aver Brothers. You know, in the uh, uh, Gregory Allen Isakov, people like that. And his music, Jimmy Rogers' music, reminds me of their music. So again, there's that that connection. This is not this is not just the root of country music. This is the root of a lot of other forms as well. And like I had mentioned, uh, Jimmy Rogers is the rough side of country music, and I think that that's putting it mildly. Um, I have selected a, an example to show you or to, to get you to listen to, and it comes from his song uh, T for Texas, which is also Blue Yodel Number no. 1. And I've, I've kind of paused the uh, music out here in the middle, so we're going to skip the beginning. But two things before I play the clip, uh, try to listen to lyrics. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly what the sound quality is going to be on this, but try to listen to the lyrics. If you can't hear the lyrics very well, go look up the song and listen to the lyrics. Um, and also listen for his yodel because it's very famous. All right, here we go. Okay, I, I hope that you could get that because what he's saying is if you don't want me, uh, woman, that's okay because I can get more women than a passenger train can hold. And that's very, very uh, a lyric. Okay, that's a lyric that very much follows the way that his music presented uh, itself. Um, Pistol Pack and Papa is another great example. Um, he talks about a gun that he owns and, you know, waving it at people. Uh, this is indeed a metaphor. Uh, so if you go and listen to the song, you know, keep that in mind. But uh, yeah, he was 100% a womanizer. Uh, he was married, but he had a woman, women everywhere. Um, he liked drinking. So he liked you know, women and wine. And uh, he lived a very rough lifestyle and he died young. Uh, and the sense of living a rough lifestyle, he actually, the rumor is that he uh, hung out with Bonnie and Clyde. I, I mean, he was just that kind of guy. He was known as the traveling brakeman because of the way in which he dressed and the um, the job that he performed before. If you, uh, for example, if you look up um, Blue Yodel, the one that I just played a second ago, and look at the original video, you can see that he's dressed as a brakeman. 
but also he was dressed uh, as a gangster. I, I mean, I've had students say, you know, oh, he looks very gangster uh, as a gangster in some photos because he, he had this very clean cut um, style of dress and other uh, pr uh, production photos. He, you know, he had the, the suit, the pinstripe suit, uh, tie, a nice hat and things like that. So he doesn't really look like what you would think of as a country music star. And we're going to talk about that when we move forward just a little bit. But I want to call attention to it now with Jimmy Rogers, because it's also characteristic of the, uh, the Carter family. Okay, so now I want to think about the Carter family just for a minute. Their uh, music is very, very radically different from that of Jimmy Rogers. Jimmy Rogers, you know, he sings alone. He's a, a sort of, he's a solo act. He's got his yodel, which is very distinctive. Uh, and by the way, it, you can hear that in many other genres and musicians today as well. He's not the only person that had a yodel, but uh, many others do as well. But the Carter family um, falls into a tradition of the, the quartet, which is, you know, they're not necessarily singing as a full quartet, but they're they're harmonizing. And they're uh, pulling in, you know, they, they might have one person that sings and then they'll harmonize for a second. And you'll hear a bit of that in the song I'm going to play in just a second. I have chosen to pick from um, uh, one of their most famous works. And uh, this is Wildwood Flower. And it, the song, it sounds more upbeat, but we're going to look at the lyrics. I, you know, I've chosen a selection from the end of the song um, to share with you. So let, let's go ahead and jump into that and we'll talk about it. Okay, so you can hear that harmonizing that I was talking about just a second ago. Again, I picked this from the very end of the song, which is somewhat darker, but it's not dark. It's not edgy in the same way that uh, that Jimmy Rogers was. You know, again, he's bragging about uh, you know all the women he can get. He's bragging about shooting at people, you know, metaphorically as well. In this particular case, it may have been difficult to understand. Well, you told me you loved me and called me your flower that was blooming to cheer you through life's dreary hour. I long to see him regret life's dark hour. He's gone and neglected this pale wildwood flower. So this is a song about a woman who has been spurned by a man. Um, she, you know, in the song, she kind of, she comes to, to like him, love him. Um, and then he, he just leaves, he dumps her. And this is not an uncommon thing. And it's a song about living through one of life's processes. They have a, a good deal of music like this. And it captures, again, maybe not wholesome, but a wholesome style of reaction. She's not talking about, I'm going to go get a gun and chase this guy down or getting revenge or anything like that. You know, those are themes that run through music today in many ways that are, I would say, born out of Jimmy Rogers. But this is that more wholesome aspect. What happened in life? Is it an obstacle? Is it a terrible thing? Is it a death? Is it uh, somebody spurning you? Then, you know, I, I will hold on. I will have faith and I will uh, wait for, you know, you to regret your decision rather than me going out and taking revenge on you. So it's a, a that more wholesome style aspect versus Jimmy Rogers' very unwholesome sort of edgy aspect.
And that carries us forward. Uh, once we get these two uh, sort of acts established, a good number of other acts follow in their footsteps. And, you know, the, the presentation of, of the other acts would be through things like the Gretel of Opry, which, by the way, the rumor there, in case you've never heard, is that uh, somebody supposedly, there's no recording of it that I know of, uh, quipped on the radio after playing opera that now that they were going to, you know, they were done with opera, so now they were going to move on to country music and the Grand Old Opry. And uh, so... That was, that's the rumor of how that came to have its name. But that's just one example of presentation. Of course, you know, there are radio stations and, and towers and whatnot uh, that, that are playing this type of music. But it's making money and it's getting people's attention because it's making money. And again, to jump back for just a quick second, you know, I, I mentioned a second ago uh, Harry Potter. Harry Potter did not start as a movie. Harry Potter started as a series of books and the books were making money. And so what happens, a studio exec comes, comes along and says, hey, you know, I think we could make some other money with this if we made it into a movie. And so lo and behold, country music starts to go through the exact same thing. Um, you have people making some money on country music and the, uh, the movie industry comes along and says, hey, that's a really great sound. We'd like to put it in some of our movies. Uh, you know, people like to sing in these movies. And uh, people just eat that up. They just want to go and, you know, listen to, to music and at the theater. And uh, so this is what happened is the movie industry came along, adapted that into its, uh, its cinematic offerings, and hence country music was, was born. It really hit as sort of a, a more mainstay stage. But in all of that, there's a sort of a trick and a hiccup. Now, I, I've already drawn attention to the fact that uh, Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family were dressing in sort of their Sunday best. They didn't really know how to dress. They were, you know, asked to come down to a radio station and do a recording. And so they did this. Uh, and again, there's no con concept of an outfit. So they just decided, well, we'll just go all out and we'll just dress, you know, uh, very dignified. And that's one of the reasons why you see them dressed up so often in uh, presentations or dressed in a way that's very different from country music. When country music was adapted to the, the silver screen, westerns were very popular. And so in westerns, of course, you have cowboys and cowboys are dressed with, you know, thing out hats and, and tassels and things like that hanging off of their outfits. And uh, these cowboys would come out and then they would start to sing what was music that was highly associated with the South. And so westerns and country music came to be heavily associated with each other. Hence the costume of country music came from westerns themselves. Um, the the image of a cowboy became melded to that of country music, and that's how we got to where we are. That's why today um, the costume of country music artist is heavily associated with those westerns. Um, if you have a person performing country music, oftentimes they will have on a big hat and jeans, and um, possibly if they really want to reference a sort of older feel tassels on their outfit. This is, um, it sounds strange to, uh, let me sideway here, uh, sidetrack here. It sounds strange to talk about a costume associated with, uh, with music, but think about it. Think about, uh, if you have music from the, the nineties, say, right. There was a costume associated with that. You could not violate that costume because then people would not listen to that music. You, it was torn jeans, flannel t-shirts, 
oversized clothing, uh, you know, so forth and so on. Country music, the exact same thing. That that's what their costume is. You can't violate that too much because if you do, nobody's going to listen to it. A uh, great example: um, uh, Garth Brooks. Garth Brooks went through, uh, you know, this darker phase or something like that, and he began to dress in a very different way. And uh, you know, I, I know that some of that had to do with the music, but I would also say the presentation. That the presentation is what threw some people off um, because they were like, wait a minute, this is not country music as I know it. All right, that gives you an overview of how movies came to influence. But now let's look at a couple of other genres that emerged out of country music. Okay, so out of the singing cowboy tradition, we have uh, singing cowboys like Gene Autry. So if you were looking for an example of a uh, country music, country western star, uh, Jane Autry would be a really good example. But as this becomes more commercialized, as it progresses and moves forward, uh, people begin to react to that. They, you know, as with anything, when it becomes over commercialized, uh, people sort of fight back against that. And this, there's a slow progress of this, and it manifests in different ways. Uh, if we jump forward, uh, you know, a couple of years, for example, I would say that Johnny Cash could be tied in that to that somewhat. Uh, Willie Nelson as well. These are people who reacted against the commercialization and sort of have this anti-commercial attitude that uh, was tied to their presentation, which again, the irony there is that eventually they become commercialized as well because then they become part of that. Uh, Willie Nelson is who Willie Nelson is. And if you um, know anything about Willie Nelson at all, you know that you know his image is heavily associated with uh, pot smoking and his uh, his braids and his uh, look. He has a bandana wrapped around his head constantly. And if Willie Nelson wanted to change that outfit and cut his hair and stop smoking pot, then I, I don't know that people would recognize that or, or acknowledge him. He's, you know, he's created an image for himself. But if we go back again, uh, we also get to bluegrass. Bluegrass emerges out of this. And this is, you know, so people saying, hey, you know, country music, it was a, a thing before it got on the big screen and became, you know, sort of, overproduced or however you want to call that. Uh, and we want to go back and perform it the way that it was performed before. We don't like how it uh, is presented today. And uh, so it, then you get into that whole genre of music uh, and you get into you know, people like uh, Earl Scruggs. And uh, by the way, even Steve Martin, Steve Martin can really, he's a great banjo player if you've never heard him play it before. And I mean, the, uh, the comedian from the eighties and nineties, and uh, early 2000s. He's a brilliant comedian, uh, but he's also a really accomplished banjo player. And he's very passionate about it. So, you know, go look him up. But that that's a reaction as well. We want to go back to, you know, the way it was originally played. And if you think about Fiddlin' John Carson, his music comes very close to a, a great deal of how uh, bluegrass is played today and the, the sound of bluegrass itself. But that's not the only genre. Um, there are other genres that we're not necessarily a reaction so much as just kind of uh, tied to the the sound limitations of their day. Uh, so if you think about, for example, you know, we get to the, the 80s and 90s and 2000s, and there's a lot of electronic style music being played and, you know, sounds are being warped. And it's not like, you know, you can still hear some people today complain about how overproduced music is today. But that's because the technology is changing and it's making new things possible. And because it's making new things possible, people are adapting to that and just experimenting with it. Um, the limitations of technology oftentimes will limit the sounds that can be produced. And that brings us to honky-tonk music. Honky-tonk music was born out of bar houses and really rough and tumble you know, environments. 
And uh, so if you've ever listened to honky tonk music, you'll know that there's the, you know, still guitar is heavily associated with it, but also a kind of heavy bass too. So imagine you're in a very crowded bar, everybody's dancing and having a good time. It's a Friday or Saturday night, wherever you happen to be. And, you know, people are unwinding from the week. And when they're unwinding from the week, the, the uh, band's on the stage and they're uh, making, you know, they're just making music and pouring their hearts out into their instruments to be heard over that crowd. There are really only two ranges that they can go into the very high range, hence the steel guitar and the, the low dun, 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 dun of the, the bass. And the reason is, is because you can feel that and the floorboards and you can feel that, you know, as you're dancing out there, you can kind of almost feel it in your chest if it's loud enough. And so that's that limitation actually encouraged honky tonk music to take on the sound that it did because people could dance to it and they could have a good time to it. Yeah, but they could also hear it over all the noise of all those human bodies in that room moving around. One of my goals for doing this podcast and including just a little bit of the music is to um, to show you that, you know, maybe you're reading about this, maybe you're reading a textbook or something. Uh, my experience as an instructor has been that a lot of students will, you know, do their reading and text that I assign and uh, I'll say, hey, you know, what about Patsy Klein? It was pretty cool to notice her in there. And, and students will say, I, you know, I don't know who that is. I'm sorry. I, you know, I swear I've never heard of this person before. <laughs> and that's always funny to me because I know for a fact that they have heard Patsy Klein. Um, I would be willing to bet on that. And the reason is, is because Patsy Klein is so prolific, uh, prolific. She's everywhere, all, all over the place. Um, you know, if you turn on a movie and the, the uh, movie producer wants to set the stage and show you that you're in a country western bar, um, they're going to play some Patsy Cline in the background on the, the jukebox. And uh, so that's one of the reasons why I, I just want to share a little bit of Patsy Cline because I think Patsy Cline embodies some of the things that we've been, been talking about and listening or uh, talking about here right now. I guarantee you, if right now you're saying, I don't know who that is, well, here we go. Let's listen to it a little bit. Crazy. I'm crazy for feeling so lonely. I'm crazy. Crazy for feeling so lonely. The reason I wanted to share her music is because I think it embodies, again, some of the things that we've been talking about. You hear a little bit of harmonization in the background with uh, the low voice. Doo -doo -doo -doo. Um, you hear her range uh, going very high up. It, again, if you're in a honky-tonk bar or something like that, or bar in general, that sound's going to be able to cut through things. But also, and it might be difficult to hear on the uh, the microphone, um, there's that, that very low slow doo, 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 doo. and that drives the music it drives the music in the way that i talked about with honky tonk just a second ago um, she's not quite what i would call more traditional honky tonk which is i think going to be much faster paced but she has some of those characteristics and she's starting to blend some of the characteristics that we've been talking about from those earlier forms and that's why i chose patsy klein i could have picked you know a whole range of other uh individuals as well um, I could have picked Marty Robbins. You know, I could have talked about Dolly Parton. It kind of kills me that I can't talk about Dolly Parton because I'm, I'm trying to just pick one or two examples. Um, I could have picked Amy Lou Harris. 
but uh, I think the Patsy Cline does capture and embody some of those things. And I hope now too that you've heard Patsy Cline. If there are other artists that maybe you've you know read about and you're like I don't know that person, that you'll go out and look them up because I, I would be willing again to bet that you do know who they are. And that brings me almost to the end of this episode. Um, this episode has focused largely on country music and some of the European traditions and white traditions uh, and, and just following that, that overall story. Now, there are many, many more details to this and there are many, many artists and there are many people that I had to admit in order to, uh, to try to keep this as short as possible. But there is one more facet I want to mention because I think it will bridge us over nicely into the next episode. Um, I have made a choice, and the choice is to not play Elvis. Uh, and the reason is, I, I think the Elvis estate is more is far stricter than some of the others that I've covered at this point. I, you know, I don't know that Jimmy Rogers' catalog is really being strictly enforced, but I would say that Elvis still is. And I would also be willing to wager that most of you know um, Elvis's songs kind of more or less. It, so I'm going to omit that. And instead, what I want to do is I'm just going to play a little bit of this other song. And uh, it should help remind you of Elvis, but we're going to talk about that. Okay, that is Arthur Big Boy Crudup. And Arthur Big Boy Crudup's song, uh, That's All Right Mama, is a good illustration of where I want to be able to segue into with the next episode. And that, that is the idea that you had a good number of black musicians who were being covered by white performers like Elvis or uh, other individuals who were you know, performing that music. And the goal was to be able to sell records and this ties back to really one of the very first episodes in this podcast series. What is culture? How do we define culture? How do we define ourselves through culture, through material and non-material associations? Um, if you are a big burly man and uh, you know, you're know you a tough guy, you go to the gym all the time and then you go out with your friends and you go to the you know, out to drink or something like that. And rather than ordering a, a, you know, a beer, you order a pink drink with a little tiny straw in it your friends are relentlessly going to tease you. And the reason is, is because the thing that you, uh, the things that you purchase and the things that are, you surround yourself with are the ways in which we tend to interpret other people's personalities. And that's unfortunate because uh, a good number of people do enjoy things that are outside of, you know, what should, uh, what could be considered their cultural personality or, you know, their, or what have you. And that gets into a whole other debate uh, that I'm going to set to the side. Because what I want to concentrate on now is the ramification of this. If you are a white citizen and you um, you're you know existing at the time of Elvis and Arthur Big Boy Crudup, and you hear this song and you think, "Wow, that's a pretty good song," because of the history that we covered recently in the race section, you're probably going to think, "I don't know if I want to buy that for the reasons that I had just discussed." And so what? 
some musicians and producers did is they just again started having white musicians play those songs and then you know, white citizens would say oh that oh cool look you know the white guys playing music now now i can buy it so that's a that is a sad thing but it is um a facet of the music industry that we could uh talk about as well and that it's just you know one of those associations so you know i said that this was a more lighthearted topic it is music fun to listen to and to talk about but this is uh, the downside of it i want to make sure that I, I share that as part of the this episode to make sure that you're aware of um, that piece of history tied to the industry and that brings me to the end of this episode um, again, when we pick back up next time, we'll begin to look at some of the African traditions and some of the African influences on music uh, that were handed down into the present. We'll look at it sort of roughly in the same way that we looked at in this episode. We'll look at you know, the secular and the religious traditions, but that's where we'll go with the conversation next. See you then. <laughs>